0: Welcome to the Heart of Dad podcast, the show for entrepreneur dads, consultant dads, senior leader dads who want to show up differently in their lives, to find a deeper peace of mind, more connection with their families, and more creativity and productivity in their lives. To mark the beginning of season four, I'm running a competition. For anyone who rates and reviews the shows on Apple Podcasts, I'll enter you into a free draw for two free coaching sessions with me. I'll be announcing the winners at the end of Season 4. You can find out more details on the website www.heartofdad.com. This week on Heart of Dad, I'm interviewing Esmond Baring. Esmond is a transformational life coach and entrepreneur. Having spent more than a decade working in finance, he now bases himself in Bali, where he's co-creating a psychedelic mental health startup and where he works as a transformational coach. He works especially with privileged and successful men between 35 and 55 years old, facilitating insight and clarity through a subtractive process of seeing through resistant and unrecognized thinking that may be in the way of realizing dreams and a fully experienced emotional life. Esmond is passionate about supporting his clients to realizing the truth of who they are, to a deeper connection with themselves, their women, their children, and their lives fully lived. So this week on Heart to Dead, I'm delighted to introduce my friend and fellow coach, Esmond Baring. Hi Esmond. Hi man, how are you? I'm really good. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. I feel like this is a conversation that's been waiting to happen for some time. Agreed. <laughs> so for, for anybody who doesn't know you Esmond, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes, um, my name is Esmond Baring. I'm a 42 year old Englishman who now lives in Changu in Bali, where I've for the past 10 years. Uh, I was born and raised in Hampshire in the south of England. Uh, I went to boys boarding school from the age of 8 to 18 and spent 10 years working in uh, financial services both in New York and London. Ended up in Bali in 2011. Um, Fell in love with the lifestyle here and and, and the natural flow of, of how things unfold here and I had a had a child uh, with a French woman uh, who's now six years old and her name is Nalaya. and around four or five years ago I had a an awakening of sorts that, that led me in the direction of of the work I do now which is transformational coaching with men for the most part and through this work and through some of the things I've seen to bring an awareness around mental health and that there are plenty of different ways to look at life if you're you're willing to have an exploration.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for that brief, but also very rich introduction, because I think you've you've given us lots of hooks to to explore in our conversation. Uh, I suppose the first question that comes to mind is, is what took you to Bali?
1: It's a really interesting question. When I was about 11 or 12 years old, my mother told me I had a... A distant cousin that lived in Bali and she planted a seed in my consciousness that just stayed there and It was always like I always knew at some point in my life I would either visit here or move here or have some experience in Bali and then in 2011 I was just finishing a two-year uh, Secondment in, in Vietnam. I was working in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam for two years for a financial securities firm and a an acquaintance of mine from London flew over to Vietnam to speak to me about a business he was setting up here, and it was a real estate business um, buying up beachfront from real estate and subdividing it and, and selling it on for, a, for a yield. And so I originally came here for work, is the answer to the question. Um, little did I know that the work would bring me in and would start a very uh, fascinating uh, series of unfolding events that really started me to experience life in, in new ways, but it was work initially, Matt.
0: Mm. and uh, did the work keep you there I mean obviously you're doing new work now but um, obviously that business did enough to to keep you in situ for a while
1: well the um, that business I was involved with for three and a half years and then that uh, business came to an end and I'd so fallen in love with the way of life here and I'd had a young daughter I was presented with the situation was, well, I ha- I'm going to have to recreate myself now in order to maintain and sustain this way of life. And from there, I'd always been a a salary man, my whole life because this is the way I've been trained and conditioned from university days and into the workforce. I was was a corporate man and the way I looked at money was on the basis that I worked for someone else and I received a monthly salary and occasionally a bonus if I'd done well and I had four or five weeks holidays a year and when I got to Bali I was like gosh there are other ways to do things and I, I started working for a furniture sourcing business for a period of time and then I'd had my young daughter, and it didn't make any sense to me to have this young daughter and to be living in Bali the way I was and be working for someone else. And so I had an insight that, um, well, I could set up my own business. If I set up my own business and I was working from home, well, I'd be part of my daughter's upbringing and I'd be more present and available to her. So I set up my own furniture sourcing business at, at that point. And... Um, yeah, that that, that that was my sort of first start into entrepreneurialism, I guess, was at that point. When I had the insight that it's possible to do things another way, and if other people have set up their own businesses and can work from home, then, then so can I. I just have mm. to learn how to do
0: it. Yeah, and how, how did that business pan out?
1: Do you know, I was very um, intentional with that business. I, I set it up in a way that... It was intentionally set up to generate a passive income from it. So it was a furniture sourcing business and i had the relationships with factories in vietnam and indonesia and i had relationships with architects and procurement companies and designers all around the world and my intention was to develop the business make the introductions to the factories and then have the factories pay me a, a passive income commission from the business i generated and you know it served me it served me really well for, for three years. It wasn't particularly sustainable because it was a brokerage business, and I was putting in just around the, the right amount of effort to keep me well-fed and my daughter supported and provided for. Um, but my journey took another uh, meandering turn when I, I attended a, a self-development course in, in Melbourne in January of 2016, and that's when I I first had an insight that belief was creating my experience. And once I'd had that insight and and seen and, and and really experienced. I mean, there's a story behind it, which is I, I I discovered the belief that I created when I was an eight-year-old boy that I shouldn't show my emotions. And when I uncovered that belief and took it away, suddenly my body started to express emotions that had been repressed in my body for thirty years. And it was a it was a profound moment of awakening for me because it it started asking me the deeper question: Well, if that's that belief, what else am I comprised of? And, Am I a product of other people's expectations? What what beliefs have I modelled to live my life in a certain way? And that started a sort of five year journey into the unraveling of of the conditioned version of the man I was into the man
0: I'm still becoming today. So that's beautiful. And and um, you know, I was saying to you before we hit the record that I've been reading your blog about that experience as a as an eight year old, and I wonder if you'd tell that story because it really touched me when I when I read it. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to, Matt. Um, as an eight-year-old boy, I remember being
1: told that we were gonna be sent away to school, and um, I think our parents delivered that news in as jocular and as um, gentle a way as possible, but I, I still remember to this day the butterflies I felt in my stomach when I heard this news, and this sort of tightness in my throat, like we were going to buy the school uniforms and packing the trunk, and there was this big hoo-ha, and the family were driving sort of back to school for the first time, and I, I just had this um, this dread in my body, but as an eight-year-old boy, I was unable to sort of articulate what that feeling was. Just that it was very uncomfortable. And I remember my first night at school in the dormitory of, sort of ten other boys, and I had a, a, a walrus teddy bear called Lovable, and uh, Lovable was emblazoned in a pink in pink lettering across the front of walrus, and my nanny had um, sewed a blue and white striped pyjama jacket on Lovable's pink shirt, so I wouldn't be teased by the other boys. I remember clutching Lovable that first night. And there were enormous emotions welling up in me and sort of confusion and fear and sadness of this new and, you know, strange environment. And I was really afraid of expressing myself and sobbing myself to sleep for fear of what the other boys would think and the ridicule. And um, that was the first moment that I decided for myself that it wasn't safe for me to express my emotions and so I started to bottle them up. And then about a year later, when my younger brother joined the the boarding school, the prep school, for the first time, he was uh, much more expressive and uh, sensitive, I suppose. But he was willing to cry the tears of of sadness and homesickness for parents. And as the older brother, I was asked one morning, because he was hysterical at the breakfast table, to take him outside for a walk around the cart path, as it was known, just to settle his nerves and calm him down. And, of course, his emotions were triggering all of mine, because I'd done the best that I could over the, the preceding year to, to cope and to repress and suppress and get along and people please and do the best I could to be popular so I wouldn't you know stand out in any way. And I remember walking around that cart path with him and he was crying his eyes out and the agony I was feeling in my throat as I, as I choked down on my own feelings. And I remember in that moment when I made a decision, and I still remember to this day, And the decision was, I won't show my emotions in order to protect my brother and be strong for him. And the power of that moment and what was coming up and the decision I made in that moment created a very, very, very deep imprinted belief in my subconscious. And it was, I think, around 30 years later in the Australian Outback when I discovered this belief that I won't show my emotions in order to be stronger for my brother. And in the dissolution of that belief and seeing it for what it was, it, it just opened the, um, the the floodgates. And I howled and howled and howled and sobbed. And, it, and then I started laughing, laughing, laughing because... The man finally realized that he'd be living his whole emotional life through the beliefs of an eight-year-old boy. And like I said before, that really started an extraordinary journey for me of unraveling, like, well, who am I really? And whose life am I am I actually living? Is it mine or is it uh, based on those who come before me?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a amazing insight. And it's such a, such a beautiful, touching story. There's a couple of directions I want to explore with you, if I may. You know, one is just for, sort of briefly to hear your thoughts about boarding schools and experience and you know there, there's been a lot written about them there's a there's a whole field of psychology now in board, boarding school survivorhood i believe and people who who help um i don't know if it's particularly men but i imagine it is more men than women but maybe that's an assumption to, to get over the experience of that traumatic separation that you were describing what, what are your thoughts about that
1: I always thought I had a really good time at boarding school um, and what I didn't realize is that from that moment on I was an anxious and nervous little boy that became an anxious and nervous teenager that became an anxious and nervous young man that became an anxious nervous and depressed older man. <laughs> uh, what I didn't realize was the effects of that boarding school education and being taken away from the nurture of home, with no, let's say, awareness around the emotional landscape of a developing boy. For me, it created isolation, loneliness, anxiety, and depression in my later life, but I never knew that until about three or four years ago when I started to become really curious about why I was suffering so much mentally. And so, um, Unaware of what that was and I'd used alcohol and I'd used relationships and I'd used work and I'd used drugs I would used all sorts of coping mechanisms just to take that edge off And I never knew that that edge that I was talking about was the was the chronic anxiety that just really stayed with me for Most of my life without realizing it and as I looked around I saw that so many of my peers You know five years above me and five years below me were self-medicating in the same way it was almost a sense of their general default was a, was an underlying current of anxiety and mild depression by virtue of not having the ability to articulate and express the emotional landscape. So and that was a very long winded way of saying doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Um, and if I, but I did, there's no blame of that because at the time it was considered God, it was considered the best possible opportunity for any young man to go away and have these experiences. And, um, but uh, I, I do now find it in my work, and I do a lot of work with men, that there's so limited awareness around their experience. So many men are suffering, and I'm not even aware of what is the cause of that.
0: I really resonate with everything you're saying there. And um, yes, that, and I think it's really important what you're saying about the... Um, with, with parents making those choices are are, are doing what they, th- the, they the best they with the best they think they're doing for their for their children and maybe with un- right. unintended consequences. That's right. I, w- I want to pick up on something else you said um, a little bit earlier about um, being a salary man and uh, not questioning kind of the program of life. And uh, as it appears for previous generations, can you tell me a little bit more about that? It's going kind to of really intrigue me as a statement. And I, I I wondered a bit more about kind of what your family and, and you know, what traditions there were and expectations. But it sounds like you're the eldest, is that right? No, no,
1: I'm, you know? I'm, I'm, I'm number three of four. Okay, number three, I have an older, okay. brother, an older brother who's nine years older than me, an older sister who's eight years older than me, and a younger mm-hmm. brother who's 18 months younger than me. Okay. Mm. And gosh. Uh, I went to uh, a boarding school called Ludgrove, and then I went to uh, a public school called Eton. And I was told all along that these were um, elitist institutions. And at these institutions, unconsciously or subliminally, there was a a message of, you are the future leaders of the country. And future leaders of the country behave in certain ways. And future leaders of the country go into certain businesses and industries. And future leaders of the country etc, etc, etc. Now, I was an unconscious um, teenage boy. And what I saw in my father, who worked in financial services his whole life, was a man who worked incredibly hard, uh, was never at home. Um, Saw him very briefly uh, for 20 minutes in the evening after we'd been washed and, and fed and presented for 20 minutes of conversation, there wasn't a huge amount of emotional nurturance because my parents didn't come from families where there was an enormous amount of emotional nurturance. And so there was no, there was nothing for me as a child to pick up on in order to model and to learn because they themselves were repressed and suppressed. And and, um, and there was a lot of alcohol in my family, which was actually in hindsight, a way that my family, you know, they used the alcohol to feel because the actually drinking alcohol made them feel something, even if it was, um, artificial. Um, but I just looked at my father and I saw that he provided for us by working at a bank and as a salaryman with a bonus. And I um, I did some paid internships at the age of 1920 uh, and 21 during my university years. I worked summers at these banks because I never even questioned or made any assumptions that I would be anything else but a banker for some reason, even though I was absolutely no interest in banking whatsoever. Absolutely no interest in putting a Susan McGinn and going to sit in front of a financial spreadsheet and model numbers for someone else's business. It made no sense to me. But there was this allure of money and wealth and the trappings and i love this word trappings because i realize now that that's exactly what it was it was a trapping that i found myself bound into and poured my life essence into this mold of something that i wasn't but i did it i did it myself i was never forced in that direction i just assumed unconsciously that that was what i would do because members of men of, of, of my background and, and 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 my education did these certain things which were law or banking or, or medicine or real estate or whatever it was and so unconsciously i went to a system where actually if i'd really been in tune with my emotions back then that i would have said no i was a really good golfer. And I remember at eighteen years old, I um was having a golf lesson. My old man was there watching me and the, the golf pro said, You've got the most extraordinarily fast hands. And I think if we work together for the next eighteen months, you might have a shot at going on the European tour. And I just lit up because I loved sports and I loved that idea. And I remember looking up at my old man who I've just been accepted at University in America. And I looked sort of imploringly at him, asking his permission almost, rather than taking um responsibility and authority of my own life at that point, because if I'd really wanted to do that, I could have taken a job and I could have dropped out of university and I could have done that. But I didn't realize that at that stage in my life that I had the choice to choose my own path because I was so deeply grooved into the conditioning of what, what people did, university education, into employment, salaries. And, and before I knew it, I was stuck in the
0: system and I was, I was miserable. Mm. Very, yeah, very interesting. And I can see some, some parallels with my, my own life. So if I finally I ended up, kind of bailing out of the system at at, uh, the end of university and going to work in Sri Lanka for, for three years. And I think that was my unconscious moment of severance with sort of that, that path, uh, all sorts of odd, odd meanders afterwards. But, um, I I can really recognize that. Um, I love that moment you're talking about when you looked at your father and, you know, looking for that unconscious permission, really, because I think that plays out in so many people's lives, uh, either in that sort of um, stepping sort of full into the system <laughs> or with, you know, outright kind of rebellion against it. And it can go, it goes, usually goes one of two ways, doesn't it? Uh, and not, ni- neither of it, neither of those ways is uh, kind of a true-to-self way. So they're, they're both reactions or responses right?
1: See, I love what you're saying and what comes to me as just as you're speaking is I realized in that moment I was imploring him to allow me to be myself mm. because that would have been my path that would have been the way that I took and I would have had a go at it and who knows you know I'm going to fall yeah. flat my face but it would have been my decision and so I could have taken responsibility for it so I didn't realize that I could follow my dreams I didn't realize that I could follow my passions you know, that's that's something that's come twenty years later of, of 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 real work that actually I can deliberately create a life that I absolutely love. And I'm in the process of that now at forty two years old, which sort of brings a smile to my face, a wry smile to
0: my face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. And um it, sort of fast forwarding back to your life in Bali, um what what took you to Melbourne in twenty sixteen to do that? That it's, a, it's
1: such a, it's such a great question. When um, the mother of my daughter, Delphine, became pregnant, um I had this sense, I had this intuition, I had this I had this wisdom speaking through me that I had to start doing some work on myself if I was gonna be the father I wanted to be to my daughter. Um, I had this sense of my just generalized anxiety and that I was Drinking alcohol to to deaden and numb that. I didn't realize at the time that I was depressed, just because my default state of being was one of sort of shame, um, fueled with fear, fueled with guilt, and I didn't realize that that was my my state of being. Um, so it was my it was the news that my daughter was was coming into the world, and my former partner and I got pregnant after about 4 months of being in a relationship and if I'd been really honest with myself at the time that I'd heard that she was pregnant I would have told her that I would absolutely love to co-parent our daughter in a in a relationship with you of of co-parenting but I had this conditioned sense of duty and responsibility as a man to create a family environment And I I wasn't authentic with myself in that moment because of these ideas of who I should be and what I should create in that moment. So I was dishonest. I was inauthentic with myself and I was inauthentic with with the mother of my daughter. And we spent two and a half very difficult years together trying to make something work that wasn't supposed to work. And it was at that point that um, she actually introduced me to a friend of hers that was speaking about this development course called Avatar. And it just—it's just sung to my being, and I—I—I I, I didn't even question it. And I paid something like four and a half thousand dollars in flights and accommodation and tuition fees to fly to the Melbourne outback, an hour and a half hours outside of Melbourne into this nondescript cottage in the middle of nowhere, and I had no idea what I was doing there, but I knew that I had to be there. And it was one of the most profound nine days of my life. It was—it was it was a, it was an awakening moment for me. You know, I'd been screaming out the sense that there has to be more to life, and this showed me that there was.
0: So that sounds such a profound, uh, such a profound moment. It gives me kind of shivers down the spine listening to you because, um, yes, it's it's a it's a fantastic description of kind of awakening in in all the in all the ways, and and um, it also strikes me that. Uh, whatever your belief systems are about how life works, there is a great unfolding going on. Even if you're you know, you're in a relationship with, with your ex-partner, um, you create a child together, you have a sense of, okay, in reality, I would prefer to co-parent rather than try and forge a family. All that is going on at the surface. There's this other great unfolding going on within you, which is actually you cannot but express who you are. That, that has to burst out at some point. And um, it's such Absolutely. a joy, joyous, amazing thing to, to experience and to witness in others. Do you know that, um, that
1: quote by Anais Nin, which goes, and the moment arrived when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom and oh my god in my own experience do i relate to that
0: because it's
1: oh, like yes. okay it's
0: time here
1: we go <laughs> yeah
0: that's so true uh that quote was written on the board the day i uh, started training as a psychotherapist um in 2010 it was and um i'd never seen that quote before and yeah it spoke to me in the same way so that oh right yeah i'm home yeah yeah, And uh, I wasn't quite home, but I was home at that time for that that kind uh, of just... thing. It <laughs> was, was another home to find. But, yeah, amazing. T- tell me a little bit about that. Um, you, know, you, you you split up uh, with Delphine after two and a half years. It sounds like, and you, know, you yeah. chose a different path in terms of parenting. How, how was it to, to to separate and to start a different way of being a dad with, um, with your daughter?
1: It was very hard initially. Um, because I was a very active, proactive father from the very beginning. Um, Delphine had a caesarean here in Bali, and I spent the first 45 minutes of my daughter's life with her in in the recovery room outside as they cleaned her and, we did a lotus birth so the placenta was still attached, so the umbilical cord was still attached to placenta until it naturally fell away after five or six days. And I had this moment when she first opened her eyes and it was was so overpoweringly beautiful. And it was like, gosh, it's like, you're the one I've been waiting for. And so just from, I I had this knowing in my being that I was to become a father and uh, it was gonna be a very defining role in my life. And so I'd been very, very hands-on, which was very unlike the way I was raised, <laughs> actually raised by other people for the most part. So I was it was a really deeply fulfilling and connected relationship that I'd had from the moment my daughter was born until I separated from her mum. And the separation from my mum was, was painful, and um, painful for her and painful for me because I left the home that we'd created together and I moved out. And then we went through all sorts of, arguments about primary caregiving and made total sense to me as a father that I would have my daughter half the time and She'd spend half the time with her mother Um, and there was some disagreements we had over that that resulted in me having two days a week with my daughter and her spending five days a week with her mother and I felt so much pain and rage at the injustice of this situation. However, it was a process of me letting go of what I thought was right in order for the, 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 let's say, the overall harmony and everything to fall into the right place in the right time. And at one point, after about a year of that arrangement, my daughter originated to me. She says, Papa, she goes, why am I spending so much more time with Mama than I am with you? I want to spend more time with you. And I said, well, I said, you have to have to talk to your mother about that because that was, that was her decision. And a night later, my daughter originated to Mama. She said, Mama? Why are you not letting me spend so much time with Papa? And so Mama was furious. She said, What did you say? I said, I didn't say anything. I just told a lie of the truth. And then, so I got an extra day. And then, you know, Delphine and I have had an incredible journey together. And we're really good friends now. There's mutual respect and admiration and support for one another. And we've both been on a gigantic journey. Um, But it took an enormous amount of this unraveling to occur for us to settle into these new versions of the people we were becoming but what we kept front and center the whole time was our love for our daughter we never said a bad word uh, about the other to our daughter at any point because why would we do that if, if we both love our daughter we we both want our daughter to have a loving relationship with her mother and a loving relationship with her father and that's what just made sense to us and so we always stuck to that and our mutual adoration and love and passion for our daughter has kept us on the same track, and um, yeah, and now we're in this beautiful situation where she spends a week with me, and she spends a week with her mum, and I go and have dinner at her mum's house when she's with her mother, and her mother comes to my house and has one dinner a week when we're here, and it's really working. It's really working well now.
0: Oh, that's so so good to hear. Um, yesterday I w- I'm in the middle of doing the My Heart of Dad Summit, and I was uh, interviewing Mark Howard. And he was talking about his experience of um, when, when his son was uh, was young, like a four-year-old, and some difficult times they had. And he had been uh, kind of learning with Sid Banks, Sidney Banks at that time. Um, and for those of you who don't, don't know Sydney Banks, is the originator of an approach that both uh, Esmond and I have been exploring, uh, called The Three Principles. But Sidney Banks had said to, to Mark, um, you know, just, just to remember that children have the same amount of wisdom as adults. They're the same spiritual beings. They're the same energy. They have just as much access to wisdom. And uh, you know, I was just reflecting on Nalaya sort of asking or s- stating that she wanted to spend equal time between them. That's just her wisdom. Well, there was an honouring. I love that.
1: Yeah. And and then I felt it was our responsibilities as her parents to honor that. Mm. and So, yeah. And I I do look at myself as, yes, a father, but I I do see myself as a custodian or a guardian or a steward, let's say, for her own development. And what I love about what Sidney Banks says is that it's that feeling of love and understanding that transforms people's worlds. And so when my daughter is feeling anything, it's all good. And I can love, and I can be in that state of love and understanding with her. And for her to know that it's safe to feel it all is the greatest gift I feel that I can give her because I don't know anything more than she does, you know? know, I'm I'm still making it up as I go along, Matt. So who am I to tell my daughter how to be in any certain way? (laughs) I mean,
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's so, yeah. so, brilliantly said, um, I just want to switch tack again, um, a, I didn't ask you about this actually before we hit record, but, um, you have an interest in psychedelics, is that right? And you're, and you're uh, building you're doing a startup around psychedelics and mental yes. health. Yes. Yeah. Yes. say more about that? So I've, I've, I'm, I've been on the periphery of kind of seeing that I've got, uh, Colleagues, uh, former psychotherapy colleagues, who are very interested in that area and you know read read uh, at the edges of it. And I'd love to hear more about what what your thoughts are and what you're hoping to do with that. There's a there's an extraordinary groundswell
1: at the moment that's opening up all of uh, the research that was carried out in the 50s and the 60s before it was shut down in the 70s by the Nixon government and. Mm. I was I was quite active with psychedelics as a, as a young boy and young man, and I, I was a big part of the rave culture, psychedelic mm. trance culture, which has always made sense to me. But back then it was very unintentional. It was recreational. Um, in December of last year, in fact, September to December, I mean, just a little bit of a context here, uh, Matt. Uh, January 2019, I, I had a, a high dose, hero dose, uh, uh, of psilocybin which is the um, psychoactive um, compound in magic mushrooms and that experience kind of shook up the snow globe of this mental construction that I've been living through my whole life and it started my process my deep process of unraveling 2019 was was quote-unquote my Annus Horribilis in the sense that everything that I'd been repressing, suppressing, I'd very consciously decided to remove all of the masks that I'd been wearing to express the truth of who I was. And that meant uh, resurfacing and feeling everything that I'd been repressing my whole life. And in September, I had a, a, let's say, a mental breakdown. I like to look at it as a breakthrough now that I've come through the other side, in which for three weeks, I had to go on to antidepressants just to balance myself. I was crying uncontrollably. I was having these Horrific panic attacks and uh, the despair, the darkness, the blackness, the apathy that I was feeling was—I would wish on no one, not even my worst enemy—and what I needed more than anything in that moment was was hope, and hope that there was some way through this. Because I'd, I'd consciously taken the decision to come off the SSRI antidepressant medication, and I rented a small house in the Isle of White and Sea View, with a view to going through whatever it was I had to go through, and I'd find myself just every morning getting up at six o'clock and I'd meditate for an hour. I'd put my, my shoes and my raincoat on and I'd go out in the freezing winter weather and I'd run 10 kilometers and then I'd get in the ocean. I'd get in the English Channel every morning and I'd swim because I needed to do this to keep myself alive and keep myself sane. And, I'd made this decision to go through whatever it was that was coming up to go through. So, for example, I'd go to the fridge one day and I'd be looking at the fridge for something to eat. I'm like, well, I'm not actually that hungry. What is it that I'm trying to fill here? I'd go sit at the sofa and I'd like breathing into the numbness. I'm like, okay, what's going on here? Getting really curious. And the numbness changed shape and form became... Sadness, I started to cry a little bit. I was like, this is really fascinating. I'm going to feel this a little bit further. And before I knew it, I was in the fetal position on the living room floor, screaming out in terror, and the sadness had morphed into some form of PTSD. Now, nothing has happened to me in my life that would necessarily justify having PTSD in my body. Nonetheless, my body was carrying it, perhaps from a a family ancestral lineage of alcohol abuse and addiction and dysfunction and all of this. The reason I give you the context for this long-winded answer is because hope was something that I was absolutely in absence of. I was hopeless, I was listless, I was apathetic, and I was desperate. And I called out to my brother to ask for help. I was like, Tom, I really need a project. Do you have anything we can work on together? I need something to get my teeth into. At that moment, I would have taken a job. I need just to plug in at 9 o'clock, check out at 5 p.m. I would have done anything just to have some kind of semblance to grasp onto in this madness of my mind. And he sent me this investor presentation deck of a company in london but uk biotech that's developing dmt which is the um, psychedelic molecule found in in a plant called ayahuasca which is a shamanic tradition from south america and been used for thousands of years and he and i um met the chief executive and the team and we invested a bit of money um and what i'd found in that process it had given me some hope where there had been none so i got involved in a project and i suddenly found purpose again it got me moving again and i was I was coming out of the, the depressive state. I then, um, by hook or by crook, synchronized synchronicity. In March in the UK, I was, I was offered a seat at, a, at an acacia tree ceremony. Um, 15 men got together, and it was, uh, it was a shamanic aboriginal tradition from Australia, and the shaman had come over from Australia with the, the permission of the elders to share this wisdom with some, some men in England. And I had one of the most profound weekends of my life on... On this uh, acacia tree where not only was I able to express and release so much of the trauma that had been passed down in my line but I was also able to plug into for the first time in my life the strength the power the endurance and the stamina of all of those that came before me that have resulted in me being alive and in this conversation with you today so it gave me such a deeply embodied sense of who I truly was as an extension of everything that came before me and again you know, with, with these psychedelics, my experience is, is that they create a shake-up of all the neuropathways and negative feedback loops that may be keeping someone bound in the prison of their own mind, and it creates an enormous amount of space for insight to occur, which you and I know well about, having you know, spent some time looking in the direction of, of Citibank's three principles. So my interest in psychedelics and, and the impact that they've had on my life and my journey out of my depression and anxious state have been, untoldly profound and so i really feel called to use my voice to help raise awareness around the potential and the efficacy of these medicines and a huge amount of research is being done in london now um to reschedule these 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 compounds because most of them are schedule one drugs even though they've got no there's no addictive t- t- toxicity, there's no nothing, but it's a throwback from the 1970s, and a lot of work has been done. There's a company in the UK called Compass Pathways that's developing psilocybin for treatment-resistant um, depression, and they listed on the NASDAQ about six weeks ago. and It's now a billion and a half dollar company, and it hasn't even got through proof of concept yet. So the momentum is there now, and psychedelics, if used intentionally and, and properly in a, in a psychotherapeutic setting, um, it's going to change the way that the mental health uh, universe is is regarded.
0: Powerful stuff. Thank you so much for sharing that and and both passion and insight about uh, the use of these. A a, a couple of things I'm I'm curious to to hear more about, Esmond. One would be uh, that taking that that substance back in January 2019, was it, that uh, had, Started this process of kind of disintegration and reintegration Um, Was that a conscious was that a conscious moment of Decision Okay, I, I need to do something here. That's gonna shake the tree a bit for me
1: 100% I had this sense. I had this sense Matt that my life was a charade My whole life was a masquerade But I wasn't aware that I was wearing the mask you know, that's the old, I'm swimming around in a goldfish bowl, but I've got no idea that it's water that I'm swimming in. And I just had this sense, my, my my intelligence or my wisdom was speaking to me that something really had to give. And I was so unhappy and miserable in what was considered my default state of affairs that I was 100% committed to doing whatever it took to discover the truth of who I am. And that... Um, Shake up of the snow globe so to speak was the beginning and it was exactly that it was a disintegration and I spent the best Part of about 15 months reintegrating. Yeah
0: Yeah How how were things with Nalaya in that time what you know, How did you live your relationship with your daughter through all that? It's just such a great question um,
1: It's a really great question because So January, February, March. Um, Well, when when I was at my worst last year, I was at my most anxious. It reflected in her. When I was going through my darkest, she was so sensitive. She's as sensitive a child as I was a boy and as I am a man. And... I was going for hell and back and she was picking up nervous ticks and she was biting her nails and she was she was all over the place. And, you know, looking back, I actually feel quite emotional about it. Um, She she felt it. She felt it very deeply. Um, And, you know, looking back in hindsight, when I took the decision to move from Bali back to the UK from September to January last year, um, I knew I had to do that because I knew I had to go through what I had to go through by myself and it wouldn't have actually been good for her to be around me as I was going through that, to be quite honest with you. So in hindsight, I'm really happy she was with her Bali, with her mother in Bali through that. Mm. Um, yeah.
0: It wouldn't and and, a good and did, you, did you make it a complete withdrawal at that point? Did you stay in touch with her? Did you explain what was happening? Yeah, I explained
1: to her that I'd, I'd gone back to the UK and I was I was looking for some work and... Uh, I would be away for six weeks at a time, then I'd fly back to Bali for two weeks to to be with her, then I'd come back to the UK, and I did seven weeks, then I flew back to be three weeks. So we stayed in touch. Interestingly enough, my daughter doesn't like to talk on video calls when I'm away. She also doesn't like to talk to her mother on video calls when she's away. Uh, She prefers out of sight, out of mind. Um, She she definitely communicates that she misses both of us, but she'd rather not be in conversation um, with us when we're away. So we honor that, we honor that, we don't force her to do things that she doesn't want to do.
0: One thing that strikes me in what you shared, and I think you know this is, is gonna be really profound for other dads listening, because I could imagine that going through what you did, there could also be, and I haven't heard this from you, and I don't know if it's true, but there could be a lot of guilt and shame and worry about, Um, you know, your relationship with your child. And yet I also hear what you did was an incredibly courageous step. It's like, you know, that uh, sense of I have to do something here or the consequences actually could be really, really serious for for how, if and how I live my life and all my relationships. And you haven't said that explicitly, but but I wondered if that was
1: you're spot on you're you're absolutely spot on i i did what i had to do as a man and even if that meant being apart from my daughter for for a period of time I, i did what i had to do and that again was a new sense of responsibility as a man that i hadn't felt before um but i felt the guilt and i felt the shame and yet the commitment i made to myself when i discovered that my daughter was coming into this plane when she was in her mother's belly six years before still stood fast and my commitment was to healing. My commitment was to do the work on myself so that it will not be passed to her in the same way unconsciously as it was passed to me. The buck stops here with me. She's going to have her own game and her own journey, but she's not going to carry any of the stuff that I've carried. That's my vow to her. That's
0: beautiful. And and one of the uh, unspoken aims of Heart of Dad, this podcast, is... Um, one of my founding kind of impetuses was very similar to, to break the uh, cycle of inter- intergenerational trauma uh, that that happens has happened in my family and has happened in countless families. And you know, you've just expressed that so powerfully and clearly. You know, that kind of the buck stops here. I'm you know I'm making a really conscious choice that my daughter will not inherit. Those things, that, those negative in quote marks, things from my life that she will you know, be a fully as fully expressed version of herself as she can be without having to carry all that. Exactly. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that because.
1: I ended up, during my breakdown, breakthrough last year, in in two 12-step fellowships. One was Codependency Anonymous, and one was Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families Anonymous, because I didn't realize it was a thing until I realized it was a thing. So I didn't realize that intergenerational trauma was a thing until I realized that intergenerational trauma was a thing. So to find the language written in a book by Melody Beattie called Codependent No More, my jaw nearly hit the ground, because I'd found someone who was articulating what it was like to be in the madness of my mind. And of course, then when you realize you're not alone and that there is hope for a way out, then there's a pathway to healing. And so when I found myself in these fellowships and, and sharing and starting to express the lies that I lived in, in in such a bound way for so long, and there, there was space for them to free up and this life that I'd been living that was infused, like I said before, with shame, fear and guilt started to break open. And when that started to break open, then gratitude started to pour in, and peace started to pour in, and joy again—like emotions of joy that wasn't three beers down the pub joy, but true, unadulterated experiences of joy in the moment. I mean, it changed my life. Yeah, it totally changed my life.
0: Yeah, Uh, I'm pausing, but actually, I'm just sort of drinking it all in, really. And I think uh, (laughs) it's—it's you know so great to, to listen to you, and if. Uh, if it wasn't in this format I'd be taking a lot more time just to allow some silence here because it deserves it really just to you know, to allow this wonderful energy and um, if I release the video people will see that Esmond is just like absolutely <laughs> peeping <laughs> with uh, with radiant energy right now and it's so, so <laughs> lovely to see really um, just one, one sort of final area I wanted to touch on uh, you know, we were speaking before we hit record of just about how there can still be bumps in the road. And I think your story is such an uplifting one. I think it's uplifting in so many ways. I think it's uplifting for its, its honesty, its realness. Uh, The word hope shines out again and again in what you're talking to us about, because I think you can show that we can get into our forties and beyond and still find our way back uh, into a um, hope, hopeful and connected way of being. Um, and you know, I've been uh, very uh, what's the word? Disclosive in my in my work here and on the podcast and elsewhere about in my own experiences of depression in in my life, and um, I think it can be helpful sometimes for people to know that there's, there's although these are amazing positive changes, they're not com- complete silver bullets or. Hundred percent magic wands. You know there are times when there are real bumps in the road, and you were speaking to me very movingly about that just at the beginning before we hit record. Would you mind saying a little bit about, you know, kind of your experiences of kind of the nonlinear nature of um, this? Absolutely. Into ourselves. Absolutely. I, I I think for
1: me, it's it's the becoming aware piece that's changed my life because. When I was stuck in the negative feedback loop and there was no way out, I didn't realize I had a choice. And the apathy and the shame and the low self-esteem and the low self-worth and the self-loathing, to be quite honest with you, because that's what I was experiencing unto myself was the negative voice in my head was so loud and so violent and hostile that it did make sense to me to take my life rather than to stay in this situation and suffer mercilessly of this madness in my mind. So I have so much compassion now and understanding for those men that do throw themselves from buildings or do put a gun in their mouths and, and pull the trigger because I, I understand that it makes sense in that moment to those people. Um, I was fortunate enough to insightfully realize that something was wrong, that by having the courage and the vulnerability to share that with another human being and other human beings and ask for help and then accept help. Um, I got the help when I, I asked for it and I accepted it and I got the support and I got the love and I felt the understanding and life opened up and showed me a path to healing. Now I spoke a little bit earlier about, chinks in the armor and glimmers of light coming through, and I am just so grateful that there are even glimmers of light for me to, to bask in, to realize that that is the other way, and that this dark tunnel that I was in for so long does have an ending. And I have more good days now than I have bad days, which is, which is extraordinary, because I'm now being able to anchor myself more and more and more in the hope the inspiration, the peace, the love, the joy, than I was before, because I'm a professional at shame. I'm a professional. <laughs> I'm a professional at beer. I'm a professional at guilt, but I'm done with that now. But what I wanted to say was is that, you know, bumps in the road still do appear. Some mornings I wake up and I'll be like, oh crap. And the thing is about the oh crap is that it's it's a reversion to the same state of self of of, of self loathing and complete lack of self-worth and low self-esteem where suddenly the brilliance of yesterday and all the accomplishments have disappeared because I'm back at the viewpoint of woe is me, there's no way out. However, what I now have is a different viewpoint. I've I've got an understanding that this too will pass. And so I can be with it as it comes through, and I can share it honestly and openly, and I can reach out to someone, and I can say, "I'm having a bit of a bumpy moment. Would you mind being with me as I go through this bumpy moment, and just just be here with me and hear me? And I don't need you to help me or fix me. Just love me, hug me, hold me, and be with me, because I now know and I have the tools that this all will, will pass through, um, and my sense is that these moments will be less and less and less as I go on. You know, it's a process of healing."
0: Yeah. Yeah, I really uh, see that in, in my own journey as well and uh, see that as very, very much the, the, the truth. And and, it, and it's reassuring, I think, to, you know, to, for people to hear that you can have those, what I call it excursions, <laughs> from that feeling yeah, of I love that. <laughs> I love that. I love that.
1: Just one more thing, Matt, which I think mm. is relevant. So, I, I, most of my work is with men, and a lot of men come to me because at the, 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 the end of this tether, of not knowing actually what's going on with themselves, and denial is is a word that I like to raise because, but the piece about denial that's so interesting is the don't even notice I am lying part to denial. Okay, so I'm swimming around in water like again the goldfish analogy. And I don't know where in the water, and the number of times I've been with a client and I've said, okay, we're sitting there in this quiet space, and they're settling down a little bit and. They've been unable to articulate what their experience had been before, and I'm like, "How does it feel to sit here and own up to the fact that you might be feeling depressed?" And the relief,
0: <gasps>
1: because there's awareness that there's something there. Or I am anxious. It's that. Oh, that's what that is, you know. And then there's the resistance piece that's gone. And the denial has ended, and so the space again. Ah, oh, that's what that is. And some of these men start to feel again for the first time, and, there's, and, and there's, there's a breakthrough in the tears because there's such a sense of relief that the fighting with the self has stopped just for a moment a moment's reprieve. And so, yeah, I'm feeling so inspired just to bring people to that space where it's okay to feel whatever it is that's there, you know, that's just what is there. You know what is that it's okay
0: <laughs> that's beautiful work esmond and, and so needed um there are so many men who could benefit from that that kind of space and hearing that thank you so much for sharing of your heart today and a giving pleasure. us the flavor of your journey i've really loved every it's moment awesome.
1: of it thank you so much for, for inviting me to be here it's a pleasure matt I love the work you're doing and I love the place that you're coming from. You touched me from the moment I heard your voice those months ago. You've, t- you've touched me with the, the depths that you've met yourself
0: and I resonate with you. Thank you. And uh, we'll have the links in the show notes but if people want to find out more about you, where, where do they go?
1: Um, they can go to my website which is www.esmondbearing.com, which is E-S-M-O-N-D-B-A-R-I-N-G.com my Instagram is the same, at Esmond Baring. My Facebook is Esmond Baring, and my LinkedIn is Esmond Baring. So I'm Esmond Baring. if you want to find me and follow me. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Thanks so much for spending yeah. time with me, Esmond. Pleasure. Pleasure, Matt. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Heart of Dad podcast. My mission is to get this podcast out to as many dads as possible, to help them be in the conversation, which is a different one about being a dad. And you can help that. If you found this podcast valuable could you do me a really big favor and that's just to think of one other dad you could share this with and to do so send him a link to the podcast get him involved in the conversation thank you so much